This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, and welcome to the Geisel Library. I'm Tammy Deary. I'm the Associate University Librarian for Enterprise Services, and I want to thank you all for joining us tonight to hear sports journalist Mark Johnson, who's going to give us the real dope on doping in professional sports. Um, First, I'd like to share a few things about Mark in tonight's program. Mark is a UC uh, San Diego alumnus and earned his bachelor's degree here in English. He also holds a master's and doctoral degrees in English literature from Boston University. And he's the author of several books, including most recently, Spitting in the Soup, Inside the Dirty Game of Doping in Sports, which he will be discussing tonight. I've been told that Mark spent many hours in the Geisel Library researching and writing this amazing book, which makes all of us in the library, of course, very proud. Besides his expertise as a sports writer and a photographer, Mark is a Category 2 road cyclist and has completed an Ironman triathlon and bicycled across the United States twice. In his 2012 book, Argyle Armada, Behind the Scenes of the Pro Cycling Life, he was embedded for a year in the Garmin Cervelo professional cycling team. In addition to his books, his works has been published in a variety of sports and popular media outlets, including Cycling Weekly, Velo, and Ride Cycling Review, as well as the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. As you can imagine, Mark's knowledge and insight were in high demand during the Olympic Games this summer, when Spitting in the Soup was released. He shared his perspective in a Washington Post-op piece on the International Olympics Committee's decision not to impose a blanket ban on Russia for its doping record. In a minute or so, he will shed light on that complex relationship that underlies elite sports culture and give us his thoughts on why the average person seems to have no problem with people, um, including kids, taking performance-enhancing drugs on a daily basis, but is outraged when professional athletes do. Um, so, without further ado, Mark. Thanks so much. So, yeah, in fact, I spent three years writing this book, and pretty much the last two years I spent in this library. And I, I was always so bummed because at midnight, the, speak, the, staff, the speakers would come out at 11.30 and they start kicking people out. Except if you're a student here, you could stay all night. But I didn't. Have, I don't. I'm not a student, and so I don't have an ID, and so I had to get kicked out at midnight. And I was so jealous of the kids who got to stay here all night working, because generally around midnight is when I'd really get into the groove. So what I'm going to do tonight is sort of re try and change your understanding of the received wisdom that we have about doping in sport. Today, the assumption is that. Doping is a corrosive force and is ruining sports. And that's sort of where we start and begin in our evaluation of why people dope. But that really hasn't always been the case. Professional sports have been around for about 150 years. And really for the first 100 years of professional sports and elite amateur sports, doping was fine. It didn't raise any eyebrows. Great example of that is the 1904 Olympics. The Olympic marathon in 1904, was, it was held in St. Louis, Missouri in August. It was stinking hot, 90% humidity, 90-degree temperature. The marathon at that time was 24.85 miles long. The 26-mile marathon wasn't standardized for until 1912. At that time, there were 
about 20 runners in the marathon. And a British-American guy named Thomas Hicks was in the front. And with 10 miles to go, he hit the wall. His uh, doctor, who was in a pace car behind him, along with his trainer, Hicks implored them for something to drink. But at that time, the cutting-edge sports medicine said, no water for you. And anybody who was a who grew up with uh, playing football in the 50s or the 60s, the coaches wouldn't give you water. That's another story. Maybe we'll get to it in the QA, why water wasn't seen as something that was appropriate. Anyways, they sponged out his mouth with a sponge with uh, distilled water. Kit's on his way. With seven miles to go, he was really hurting. And so the doctor, his name was Charles Lucas, administered 1 16th of a gram of strychnine, one egg white, and again sponged out his mouth with water. Now, why would they give him strychnine, which is a rat poison? Well, in small doses, strychnine has a stimulating effect. In fact, uh, in the late 1800s, the novelist H.G. Wells, the guy who wrote War of the Worlds, said that strychnine is a marvelous tonic, and it takes the flab out of a man, because in small doses, it it really does have. Now, if you take too much, you're going to die, but under small doses. So anyway, Hicks gets to two miles to go, in the marathon, at this point, he's hallucinating. He thinks there's 20 more miles to go. He wants to give up. And uh, Charles Lucas, his doctor, comes back up with the car, gives him another 16th of a gram of strychnine, two egg whites, and a shot of brandy. He finishes the race, and he wins. But he thought he had won, but in fact, another guy had already come into the stadium where the finish was and sort of stole his thunder. But it turns out that this other guy had gotten a ride in the car. (laughs) And afterwards, the guy who cheated and got the ride in the car, he was just excoriated by the press for cheating and taking away the glory from the guy who won the right and correct way using drugs. And afterwards, uh, Charles Lucas, who in addition to being a, a doctor, a physician, he was sort of an Olympic chronicler, and he wrote that Hicks was kept in mechanical action by drugs that he might bring America the marathon honor. So there was really no sense of shame about doping an athlete. And he said, in fact, from a medical standpoint, drugs are of much benefit to athletes on the road. It was really expected at this time that an athlete would turn to the available pharmaceutical technology to do their job. And there was really no shame about it. And that attitude really carried on all the way until the 1960s. In 1941, there was a guy named Peter Karpovich, who was a very influential sports medicine researcher. He was really the guy who dismantled the notion that weightlifting would bind you and make you slow. Really until the 1960s, in the late 50s, early 60s, NFL players would not lift weights because if you lifted weights, that was indication that you were not born genetically blessed and buff enough to be a football player. And so if you lifted weights, you were a sissy. And part of that came from this tradition, this thought that lifting weights would make you too slow and bind you. And and Karpovich completely dismantled that. But he also argued in this very influential sports medicine book he wrote, that using substances, chemical substances, to increase performance is not unethical. Why? Because it's available to everyone, and as long as it doesn't harm you. Now, he wasn't a drug pusher. He also said you shouldn't use cocaine because cocaine is addictive, and he also discouraged people from using amphetamines. Amphetamines were made commercially available as Benzedrine in uh, 1937. 
And endurance athletes immediately took to speed. They were the go-to drug for cyclists, for marathon runners, because they give you a sense of, of courage and forcefulness that you might not normally have. So what did the IOC think about this? The IOC is the International Olympic Committee. They were founded by this guy, a French aristocrat named Baron Pierre de Coubertin. And the Olympics, he proposed the idea of the modern Olympics in 1894. Why? Because he was alarmed by the social, economic, and political changes that were being wrought by the Industrial Revolution. A really a signal moment sort of in the, in the evolution of his thought was in 1871 when... Uh, Proletarian workers, the communards, burnt the Tuileries Palace in Paris. This is the seat of the French monarchy. And because of their sense of displacement and exploitation at, under the hands of the Industrial Revolution, they expressed their displeasure. And he felt like this was a real threat to the aristocratic way of life. He really saw feudalism being assaulted by modern democratic movements and also the revolutionary changes that were taking place because of the Industrial Revolution. Because now you have proletarian workers who are rising in stature. You have, you have um, factory owners and innovators creating enormous amounts of money. That was very threatening for him. So he, he along with a bunch of Brit British aristocrats who, who at that time were really managed athletics, running track and field events, proposed let's create these Olympic Games as a preserve for the aristocratic values that are being assaulted by all that is being wrought by the Industrial Revolution. And he really saw the Olympics as a place for amateurs. And by amateur, I mean gentlemen, and I mean men. He felt that the only role of a woman in the Olympics is to put a garland on the winner, and that's it. Podium girls, and they had no other role in the Olympics. So he was very aristocratic and old school. How does doping fit into this? Doping was a professional act. So cycling really got its start in the 1870s, 1880s. A bicycle was available to a uh, factory worker on their wages, and all of a sudden, you have a lot of guys riding bikes. In 1890, there was about um, 50,000 bikes in France, by 1920, there were 3 million. So you have a lot of people riding bikes, and then promoters start to hold races. And all of a sudden, it is possible for a miner or a factory worker who has no stature in life and no chance of rising in the economic scale to be making a lot of money racing a bike. Probably the best example is an American named Major Taylor, who is a black American, who could make... Um, almost $10,000 a week racing his bike in six-day races, which are races they held in velodromes, Madison Square Garden, in Paris. Uh, there were six velodromes in Paris, France. So they could make enormous amounts of money. And at that time, the average wage for a black American, black male, was $150 a year. So the fact that you could have a black American earning almost 1000 bucks a day was a suggestion that, yeah, professional, professionalism was, it was a legitimate way to make a living. And for someone, for those professional athletes to take drugs to do their job was absolutely expected. They were entertainers, and if it took drugs to keep you rolling your bike 
around a track for six days because the way the six-day race would work, it was they had race for six days, and the guy who did the most laps in six days won. Well, you've got to take a lot of drugs to ride your bike for six days around a track. Coubertin saw no place for professionals in the Olympics. So when uh, prohibition about or, or a sense of value judgment about doping finally showed up in the Olympic Charter, it was in, in 1946. And it said that anyone who accepts or offers dope shouldn't be allowed to participate in amateur meetings or the Olympic Games. And this is where it stayed until 1975. And this rule against doping in, in the Olympics was in a section of the Olympic Charter about all the things you need to do to preserve your amateur status. So don't accept any free meals. Don't accept a free bicycle. You better not write an article about your sport for a newspaper and take money for it because that's a professional action. And don't take drugs. Not because drugs are inherently evil, but because drugs are professional. And the Olympics are about preserving amateur values. And that's really where... The Olympics stayed, they're relatively indifferent to the role of, of, of uh, doping in sport until August of 1960. In Rome, Italy, the Olympic Games had a 100-kilometer team time trial. That's where you have four riders, and they go as fast as they can for 100 kilometers, and the team with the shortest time wins. It was incredibly hot that day in Rome. Temperatures were hitting nearly 100 degrees. And the Danish team started off. One of their riders quickly fell off the back. Uh, they also were not drinking water because it was seen as, well, bad for performance. Riding 62 miles without water, 100-degree day, that's a challenge. So one guy quickly went off the back. 35 kilometers into the race, a rider named Nude Enemark Jensen, that's him in the middle here, started to come down with heat stroke. He's wobbling all over the place. Things are really starting to go bad. His two teammates literally are riding next to him, holding him up. Finally, he collapses. He face plants. The emergency medical technicians pick him up, take him to a tent, which is an old army tent, unair conditioned, and it's 130 degrees in there. They sit him in there, and he bakes for two hours and then dies. The autopsy reported that he died from heat stroke and head injury, which is pretty much what happened. However, a rumor took flight that he had taken amphetamines, which there was no evidence. He had taken another drug, but it wasn't amphetamines. And that was the story that the media took hold of. And it was sort of a focusing event for the IOC. Even though amphetamines had been used by athletes since the 1930s and were really a go-to drug, and no one had died from taking these drugs, all of a sudden, because of this event and because the media focused on it and said, oh, drugs are bad, they're corrosive to health and maybe morality, then the IOC said, well, maybe we should do something about it. So in the early 30s, early 60s, the Council of Europe, which is this pan-European organization of European government representatives held some doping anti-doping conferences and said, well, let's look at this time-honored process and act and see if it's something that maybe we should discourage. A really representative of, of 
their conclusion was this guy named Ludwig Prokop, who was a very eminent Austrian sports physician. And he said something that was very remarkable after one of these uh, conferences. He said, doping must be regarded primarily as a sporting and not a medical problem. That's remarkable because up until this point, sports physicians looked at doping in terms of its efficacy. Does it make you go faster, longer, higher? And its safety. They didn't look at, they were technicians. Is it safe and does it work? But after this death, they started to take on the role of, of priests passing moral judgments on whether or not doping was right or wrong. But for the first hundred years of sport, they were passing no such judgments like that. So they had these conferences in 63 and 64. The French and Belgian governments banned doping, make it a criminal offense in 1965. Why? Because the French government took a much more paternalistic attitude towards athletes as workers, and they felt like the athletes were being exploited by the race organizers and the team managers. The Tour de France is so difficult, and then back in those days, some of the stages were 12 hours long. Going back into the 30s, they were 15, 16 hours long. The stages were so hard that the riders said, well, we have to take drugs, just like the six-day riders, to do this. The French government goes, we've got to step in and stop this. So it wasn't necessarily a law to punish the riders. It was meant to protect them from worker exploitation. Then another focusing event happened in 1967 at the Tour de France. A British writer named Tom Simpson died of heat stroke on the flanks of Mount Ventoux. Now, he definitely had amphetamines. In fact, he had amphetamines in his back pocket as well as coursing through his bloodstream. So there was no question there that amphetamines, drugs, had contributed to his death. 1968, the IOC, International Olympic Committee, introduced its first drug tests. And in 1975... Finally, the anti-doping strictures move from the long list of things you need to do to maintain your amateur status to a whole separate section of the IOC charter. So you, really, it was 1960s when attitudes started to flip about doping. What else changed? In the late 1950s, a German pharmaceutical company aggressively sold a drug called thalidomide. And it, was, it helped pregnant women... Um, sleep, and it also helped them deal with nausea. But it also was creating uh, quite disturbing, horrifying birth defects. Children were being born without limbs, with limbs growing out of their head. And because of this disaster, which luckily uh, the drug was never sold in the United States, they tried really hard, but there was one heroic woman at the FDA who managed to stop them. Uh, 10,000 babies were born with these birth defects, but because of this disaster, sort of shifted overall our, our general social attitudes towards doping or, or towards drugs. The miraculous drugs that had stopped the disfigurement of polio, now people said, well, wait a minute, these drugs can also create disfigurements. So socially, in addition to these two events in cycling these deaths, uh, there was the society itself started to question its blanket uh, praise of drugs. And as well, even in the United States, we're super laissez-faire about drugs. We didn't even create a world a doping age, anti-doping agency here until the year 2000. France banned it in 1965. 35 years, we didn't do anything. The USA kind of got on the bad wagon too. In fact, June 
1969, Sports Illustrated ran a cover story, quite alarming cover story, talking about how drugs, or larger embrace of drugs, countercultural embrace of drugs, was also potentially corrosive to drugs and sport. So, 1960s, you've got this anti-doping bureaucracy taking root, uh, gaining credibility, starting to challenge the long-held doping practices of particularly endurance athletes, but also weightlifters. What else is happening? Two things. Cold War and the IOC coming to the realization that the Olympic Games are a merchandising miracle that can make a lot of money. So you've got nation anti-doping forces, but then meanwhile, like Jaws, donut, donut, Cold War, and financial potential. The Cold War was really top of mind for a lot of Americans. In 1957, the Russians put their first satellite into space, Sputnik. 1959, the World Basketball Championships took place in Chile. And the Americans sent this really crappy team down there. Why? Because all of the collegiate players were playing in their national championships. And so literally, the United States put an ad in the paper, said, hey, if you're good at basketball and you want to go to Chile, come down. <laughs> really, that's what happened. So they sent all these fifth-string players down there, and the Soviets clobbered us. And it became this huge international scandal because Chile was our big Cold War ally. And in South America, sport is a religion. You go to Argentina, you're going to be... You're going to it's blow you away because, wait, this is a Catholic country, but there's no cathedrals, but there's a lot of really glorious football stadiums. That is their... And so the South Americans felt like by sending this terrible team of basketball players that the United States was insulting uh, South America and Chile in particular. So the New York Times uh, columnist Arthur Daly, he wrote this piece, and he quoted uh, one, of the, one of the Santiago newspapers and said, when it comes to shooting at the moon or a basket... The United States cannot keep up with Russia. And Russia was serious about using the Olympics as a Cold War propaganda machine. After the end of World War II, Russia really filled in the, the geopolitical vacuum that existed in, in Europe. So they annexed East Germany, Poland, basically all of Eastern Europe became Russia. The Cold War really started, too, in, in Greece, where a civil war was going on. Russia was backing one side, the United States and the United Kingdom were backing one. United Kingdom says, we're out of here because, uh, if you haven't noticed, London's in ruins and we need to spend money resurrecting ourselves, not worrying about this civil war. Uh, then uh, we said, all right, we'll take it over. And we put 400, 400 thousand dollars towards this effort and uh, that's where the domino theory came from the notion that unless we stop the march of communism in its tracks then it will will spread throughout the world uh, in 1948 the Soviet Union opened 80 sports schools where they were going to focus on finding the best athletic talent in Russia and targeting that talent towards winning and domination on the Olympic playing fields but they also had another effort which was the fear was that at any time, war could break out, and you wanted to make sure that your populace was ready to go to battle. 
So the United States is worried. In fact, in 1960, December 24th, 1960, President-elect JFK writes a cover story for Sports Illustrated called The Soft American. And he basically berates Americans for being so out of shape. And he talks about how if you go, to, go past a high school parking lot, it's full of cars with big fins. And really, the, the fear was that if the Cold War became a hot war, we were not going to be ready to put good people on the battlefield. Why was that? Well, sur surveys are showing that 50% of recruits for the, for the military service in the, in the United States were failing because they weren't fit enough. Meanwhile, another survey had shown that Italian teenagers were way fitter than American. Why? Because they're eating a Mediterranean diet and walking to school while we were going to, ham going to McDonald's in our big finned cars. But it was really seen as, as a, a crisis for America. So Kennedy writes this piece excoriating us, and he also took steps. Anybody here, here who was in elementary school in the 60s or 70s may remember the Presidential Physical Fitness Awards where you would, they would, you would get a, a, bad, a, a patch if you did enough pull-ups, sit-ups, and run a mile in a certain amount of time. Well, you were part of the Cold War effort to defend America against the encroaching communists. That's looking at how we, we reacted on, on terms of keeping the people at large fitter, but we were also concerned about losing on the battlefield. Uh, Hubert Humphrey was the vice president, took to the pages of Life magazine and said, look, Russian sport is a challenge, just like Sputniks. We're going to be humiliated as a nation. And we were humiliated. Uh, in 1968, East Germany was given the go-ahead to the IOC to compete as a separate country before East Germany and West Germany competed together. And the 72 Olympics were in Munich, which is in in capitalist uh, Germany. So the East Germans saw this as a real opportunity to put a stick in the eye of the capitalist East Germans, but also the Russians, who we tend to th today sort of lump the Eastern Bloc countries together. But the East Germans really detested the Russians because they were their occupiers. After they invaded, they came in and they took out their industry and moved it to Russia, and, and East Germany was just a shell. They also had a certain amount of shame that they were dealing with because they were the authors of the greatest holocaust the world has ever seen. So the Olympics were seen as a way for East Germany to resurrect its demolished pride on the athletic playing field. So they put together something called State Plan Subject 1425. And it was really seen as a Manhattan project for sports. And the minister of sports, Manfred Ewald, good Nazi that he was, said Olympic preparation is no different than any military conflict. As part of this, this Manhattan Project of Sport, uh, the East Germans had 1,500 sports science researchers, 1,000 doctors, 4,700 coaches. They were administering 2 million doses of steroids every year to athletes. They had took particular interest in females. Why? Because... The chauvinistic Americans denied women the right to play in colleges. So the, the East Germans go, yeah, they wouldn't even allow women to run the freaking Boston Marathon. Catherine Spitzer, Spitzer, I believe her name is, tried to run Boston in 67. She was 19 years old. She proposed it to her coach. I think it was at Syracuse. It's in the book. <laughs> her coach said, no dame ever ran Boston. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then she tried to run, and she was physically pulled off. So the East Germans said, yeah, the, the Americans wouldn't even let their women compete. So we're going to give our women steroids because steroids have a much bigger effect on women because their testosterone level is naturally lower. And it worked. They wiped the floor with us. I mean, in, in uh, Montreal in 1976, the East Germans and, the United, and USSR took home 89 gold medals, and we took home 34. It was a monumental embarrassment in our bicentennial year. So they were sending a very, very clear message that 200 years into the great American experiment, America's on the decline. So we had to do something about it. Richard Nixon uh, was very concerned about this. R Richard Nixon was a dedicated follower of, of football, as was his very talented, in spite of what Saturday Night Live has done to his reputation. Gerald Ford was a very, very talented football player. In fact, he turned down two pro contract offers in, in order to become a lawyer. So he was a super talented player. He saw what was happening. At that time, we didn't know the extent of the doping program and the, just how elaborate the sports medicine program was in East Germany. But we had an idea because of the results. So in 1975, he puts together this commission. It was run by the CEO of Kodak. They had 18 months and a million bucks. And they went and looked at all the other countries in the world and said, how did they run their Olympic programs? They came back and said, President Ford, because he became president for reasons you know, Nixon stepped out for a while. Uh, there's three ways that the world typically organizes its Olympic programs. One, they're state-managed, state-funded, top-down programs. That's what the Soviet Union does in East Germany. Then there are some countries that have, uh, uh, they are not run by the state, but they have independent, non-governmental organizations that organize their Olympic programs. And then there are countries where no one's in charge at all. There's only one country in the world that has thir chosen the third option, and that's us. So the United States, our Olympic program was a, a disaster. And in the book, I talk about how the United States Cycling Federation was really a poster child of, of disastrous management and basically the way to take this huge potential population, which was around 220 million people at that time, particularly during the energy crisis. There were a lot of kids out there riding their stingrays, and people were starting to ride bikes as, as a means of transportation, but we, were, we certainly were not taking advantage of this huge potential. So, and out of this, this study comes the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, which was signed into law by Jimmy Carter after he beat Ford. Uh, but in writing this program, Ford made it very clear in the pages of Sports Illustrated that we're going to reform but it's not going to be a state-funded, manipulated program, and it's going to be at minimal cost to the taxpayer. So as a Republican, you can really see the policy threads that Ford is working with here. One, we've got to beat the commies. Number, rule number one, you can't be embarrassed by the commies anymore. However, we don't believe in big government bureaucracies. Corporations are the people to solve problems in America, not more government. And we don't want to raise taxes. So we're going to do this. We're going to win, but we're not going to raise taxes. And it's not going to be a government, big government program. How'd they do this? The way this law was written is it gave the right to the Olympic symbols 
and the terminology like higher, faster, stronger to the U.S. Olympic Committee, which now runs and ran uh, the Olympic program for all the Olympic sports. Uh, Moscow in 1980 was going to be the big test of this program, but we boycotted because the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. So now it's looking at 1984 in Los Angeles. Uh, we held the Olympics in L.A. in 1932. So basically what this law said in 1978, it says taxpayers aren't going to pay for it, but the USOC has these priceless symbols that you can rent out to corporations in order to take money. I hope you see where this is going in terms of how doping scandals are going to come into play here. Before the 84 Olympics in 1983, Ronald Reagan had a luncheon with the USOC head honchos, the big boys. They were mainly boys. And he said, referring to the kids who would be watching the Olympics on television and on the streets of Los Angeles, he said, I know we won't let those kids down. You won't, and you won't shortchange our country. He was sending a very clear message to the USOC executives, don't embarrass me by either losing or putting on a crappy show here. Very clear. Because, again, we'd, we're so tired of being embarrassed by the communists. Five days later, Reagan goes to a convention of evangelical leaders in Florida, and he famously used the evil empire term. He said, the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, we need to resist them. Simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. Now, the organizers of the Olympic teams got the message. Uh, in 1983, Ed Burke, who was a physician for the U.S. Cycling Federation, which is now called USA Cycling, sent out a letter to his riders, the cyclists, and to all the coaches. And he said, our cyclists will be behind the world of cycling if we don't keep up with sports medicine research. And this, this uh, letter from the, US, from the USCF said, look, we need to use blood doping, which is a process where you take blood out of yourself, you store it, and then before an event, you reintroduce it, which gives you more red blood cells, which transfers more oxygen to your muscles. You go faster and longer, and it works. Because athletes in Europe had been using blood doping Cross-country skiers, marathoners, cyclists have been using blood doping since at least the 1950s. It was very effective, and if it's done with a doctor's supervision, it's safe. And the USCF president, the USCF president said in, the, in Sports Illustrated in 1985, after this was exposed, we weren't going to fall behind the Russians or East Germans anymore. So while Reagan wasn't saying, go dope, he was saying, don't embarrass us, and also don't appease the communists. So it's pretty clear pressure from the top down that you know that the communist nations, the Eastern Bloc countries, and the, the capitalist countries in Europe, particularly in endurance sports like cycling, are doping because they have always doped. And so we got to dope too. This guy, Howard Jarvis, what's he got to do with any of this? So because of the Amateur Sports Act, We'll actually go back a little bit. In June of 1978, a, a referendum, a proposition in California, in California called Proposition 13 passed. And it was, it was really uh, the result of an outpouring of taxpayer contempt with high property taxes and a capped property taxes. In November of 1978, 
the citizens of Los Angeles passed a referendum on their ballot that changed the city charter, that it made it illegal to use a single taxpayer dime to pay for the Olympics, which in 1978, the L.A. was competing to get this to 84 Olympic Games. Uh, it passed. Now, the IOC hated this because the IOC is run by a bunch of rich, old dudes who are used to being flown in from all over the world to all these various cities that want to host the Olympics. They're wined and dined, and they're paid off, as they were in Salt Lake City, and whoever gives the most money basically hosts the Olympic Games. Well, this sucks for these guys because this, this city that wants to host the Olympics is saying, well, but we're not going to pay for it. The taxpayer said, we're not paying for this. They didn't like this at all, but they didn't really have a choice because the other, only other city in the running for the 84 Olympics was Tehran, Iran, and there was a little revolution going on there. So they dropped out. So it was L.A. in 84 or nothing because they were also very conscious of the fact that uh, the 1980 Olympics was an embarrassment because a lot of people didn't show up and because the Montreal Olympics was also a debacle. Montreal was sold to the citizens of Quebec as going to cost them $310 million. In fact, it cost them $3 billion, and they didn't get that debt off their back until 2006. In 1978, the citizens of Los Angeles knew that the Olympics was going to screw them. And so that's why they passed this referendum saying, you can't screw us because if you use a dime of our money, you're going to jail. Enter this guy, Peter Ubroff. He made a bunch of money uh, in travel agency business. So he's got nothing to do. He's hanging out. So L.A. comes to him and says, hey, we got an idea for you. You want to run the Olympics? It's a really great deal. You have no operating capital. We're not going to give you any taxpayer money. And Reagan doesn't want to be embarrassed. Well, he, 78, it wasn't Reagan. It was Ford. But you can't embarrass America. He goes, all right, sure, I'll take it on. He was a business genius. He, one of the first things he did, knowing that he had no operating capital and he couldn't get any from the taxpayers, is there was four television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and also Norman Lear, who was the guy who did All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Maud. He wanted to get into sports broadcasting, too. So Ubroth goes, all right, if you want to be at the table to try and become the Olympic broadcaster, you've got to put a $750,000 non-refundable deposit down. Interest rates in 1978 were 19, 20%. By doing deals like this, by, by demanding that anybody who wanted to be an Olympic sponsor, who wanted to hook their name up to those rings, had to put this non-refundable deposit down, within a year, the LA Olympic Organizing Committee was making 1000 bucks a day in interest alone. So another thing he did, the, the final deal that he cut with ABC was for $225 million to broadcast. That was larger than all of the previous television contracts together in history. Uh, he didn't also, he also put the screws to sponsors like Kodak. So Kodak had traditionally been the go-to film sponsor, photography sponsor for the Olympic Games. Uh, they signed a deal for $4 million to be the official sponsor, but one of the things that Uberoth had done, and it still benefits youth in, in Los Angeles today, he said any sponsor has to make an in-kind donation to a foundation that is going to support youth athletics in Los Angeles. Kodak only put $2 million in, in like-kind donations. Uberoth's going, come on, where's the rest? And they're, they're dragging their feet. 
Ubroth calls Fuji. Hey, want to be the film sponsor? We're in. $7 million. He goes back to Kodak, goes, you're in breach of contract. You're out of here. So he took a $4 million contract and turned it into a $7 million contract. He ended up making $232 million. The last time the, the Olympics have ever been successful. Now... 1983, things are getting good. Olympic preparations are great. And then their Pan American Games take place in Caracas, Venezuela. And uh, Hewlett Packard had invented these new drug testing machines that were able to identify anabolic steroids in an athlete's bloodstream uh, weeks after they had ingested them. First few days of the Pan Am Games, 15 athletes get popped. Boom, including one American. Athletes are going, crap. We've been doing this forever, and now they can find us out. 12 American athletes bail. They leave Caracas before they even put a cleat on the track. Why? Because they had to dope. They were all doped. If you're going to compete at that level, you have to dope, particularly in track and field. So this represents a huge threat for the Olympics. Now, mind you, Ubroth's got two guns to his head, one from the taxpayers that said, you're not spending a dime, and one from the executive branch who's saying, don't shortchange us, deliver. Meanwhile, you have these freaking anti-doping missionaries saying, we're going to mess everything up by coming in and cracking down and embarrassing athletes. And in, in 1983, in the wake of the Pan Am Games scandal, he wrote to uh, Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was a disciple of Francisco Franco's in Spain before they became the IOC president, and said, drugs and doctors, aren't, they're not only controlling the games, they're beginning to gain control of the whole Olympic movement. So, you got a problem here. Athletes got to dope to beat the commies, but you got to drug test them. What are we going to do? The LA Olympic Organizing Committee goes to the IOC and says, hey, you guys set up this drug testing lab at UCLA. You mind if we use it before the games? So of the 86 American athletes who tested positive in these pregame tests, 84 of them went on to compete at the Olympics. So the IOC lab at UCLA was used to make sure that the American athletes, all the drugs had been washed out of their system before they competed so there wouldn't be any embarrassment. And that embarrassment would also lap over onto sponsors like 7-Eleven who paid for the freaking velodrome. And, and corporate sponsors don't want to be involved with scandal. We get to the end of the L.A. games. It's the last week, track and field events they put towards the end because there's a big uh, television draw. And uh, somebody, some functionary from the L.A. Olympic Organizing Committee goes into the lab at UCLA and says, shut it down. Don Caitlin is the guy who runs the lab. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, we're shutting it down, no more drug testing. Caitlin stood his ground and he said, nope, I have a contract with IOC. This thing's staying open. So he continues to test. Bells and whistles, alarms are going off everywhere because he's getting so many positives. The way drug testing works is you've got a little beaker with your urine sample, and there's a number on it. That's to protect the anonymity of the drug tester and the athlete alike. When that drug test, well, when that sample comes up positive, then it's cross-referenced with another database. In this case, it was just a... a uh, a spreadsheet that has the name that connects to that. So, Caitlin goes to Alexander de Marode, who was another 
He was a Belgian aristocrat who ran the uh, IOC's medical commission and said, all right, here's all the positives. We need to cross-reference them to the names. Demerode goes, uh, well, you know that sheet with all the names on it? It went missing from my hotel room. I don't know where it was. So it later came out in, the, in, in an investigation that actually took place after Ben Johnson tested positive at the Seoul Olympics in 88 that 20 American medal winners in Los Angeles had actually tested positive, but th they never were busted because the spreadsheet went missing. Now think about that. You've had a successful games, you're at the very end, and all of a sudden all the star American athletes are about to get thrown under the bus and described as scoundrels, cheaters. And so basically the LA Olympic Organizing Committee made a business decision and said, we're gonna make this scandal go away so that we can have a successful game and close on a positive note. And the LA Games, what it really did is it changed the IOC's attitude towards the games as a money-making institution. Until 1984, the IOC still clung to this Kubertinian notion that the Olympics should be a preserve of amateurism. And any uh, sort of integration with the world of commerce would sully the beautiful purity of amateur sports. But because Samaranch was more pragmatic and also saw the incredible potential that Uberoth had pulled out of those hills from Southern California, after that it was a free-for-all. Today, uh, the television contracts now are upwards of $10 billion to become uh, the Olympic broadcaster. Uh, to become a primary sponsor for the Olympics, it's $200 million today. So really what Uberoth did with the gun of the L.A. taxpayers to his head is unlock the incredible treasure that IOC really didn't know existed in the Olympic Games. But it also created a never-ending tension between the ambition of anti-doping regulators to try and clean up sport, which was in direct conflict with the production of an entertainment product, which is what the Olympics and professional sports are. So to wrap this up, when you think about sports doping, it's, it's very easy to say, well, sports doping is just an act of solitary delinquence. If we could only get rid of the creeps like Lance Armstrong and Ben Johnson, we'd fall back to the state of fair play. But that never existed. The state of fair play and purity is a complete fabrication of the Olympic founders. who was They were really dreaming of going back to this aristocratic land, and this is an image from Mark Twain's book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, really is a vision of gentlemen jousting on their bicycles, but without the selling effect of, of money. And that never existed. It was, it was a fantasy. So it it's also conflicts with the essence of elite and Olympic sport, which we tend to think of, well, sport for sport's sake is what sport is about, it's about building character, giving athletes a sense of teamwork, courage. Those are definitely conditioning effects of elite sport, but they're not the essence of elite sport, particularly professional sport. The essence of professional sport is completely profane. It's about making money and entertaining people. And that's the way it had been since the 1870s, from the first day a guy put a fence around a soccer field and started charging admittance. So that sort of collision between our desire 
for sacred purity and the central profanity and disworldness of, of pro sports and Olympic level sports is still going on with the, the our ongoing efforts to try and uh, clean up sports. So at this point, I'll open it up to questions. I, I the Soviet Union, I should, have the, I should have Russia on retainer because they have created so much interest in this book during the Olympics. It was great. I was in Europe, and it was like my phone was ringing off the hook with, with uh, newspapers and televisions and radio interviewers who wanted to talk about how does this all fit in with the Russians getting off the hook. So I'll open it up. Thanks. What's the fine line between what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. For example, Gatorade, spiked with sugar. Very, that's fine. But speed, that's a no-go. Well, it's, it's, it's always changing. And a great example of that was this year when Sharapova, the Russian tennis player, got busted for taking a drug which to this day has questionable uh, benefits for anyone. It was only legal in, I think, Lithuania and, and Russia, and it wasn't used anywhere else. But as of January 1st of 2016, that drug, was it mel- melatonin? Melodomium. Melodomium, yeah, became illegal. So what is morally and physically acceptable is always changing based on a list at the World Anti-Doping Agency, which is an agency that was created in 1999, as an outcome of a big doping scandal that took place at the Tour de France in 1998. Uh, they have a list of drugs, and it's, and it's constantly changing. I mean, it's, as a rule of thumb, to try and identify what's good and what's bad, what's legal and what's illegal, um, what anti-doping administrators said, look, if it's a restorative drug, if it helps you get back to a normative state, if you've been injured and it's getting you back to drug then it's okay, particularly with a doctor's supervision. But if it's an additive drug that's making you better than normal, then that is not acceptable. And right now, there's a lot of discussion and scandal going on over something called therapeutic use exemptions. So just because you're a pro athlete doesn't mean you should be denied the, the right to health care. But what happens is that athletes maybe say, well, I have asthma. And so they get a therapeutic use exemption to use an asthma medicine uh, but people abuse it because some would some argue that these asthma medicines can have a performance enhancing effect. So it's constantly changing, and, and what is and what isn't legal is a gray area sometimes. Do you believe there should be any regulation for what can be consumed within sport? Yeah, I get that question a lot, and I do because I look at what the United States is. The United States. As I said, we didn't create a world anti-doping agency, I mean, our U.S. anti-doping agency until 2000. Uh, the Europeans have been on top of this, trying to clean up sports since the 1960s. Why? Because we take a much more laissez-faire attitude towards, towards doping. Our government is not as paternalistic. Basically, our philosophy is, if you want to stuff yourself with chemicals, if it's making for a better spectacle, then go for it. And that's how baseball and football have long dated because they have very strong unions, which protect the athletes' rights to do whatever the heck they want with their body. As long as they're not hurting anybody else, who cares? And if you're swatting more home runs out of, over the fence, we're making more money too, so it's, it's great. But I think that embracing that attitude and turning sport into a version of what the United States has done with our larger drug policy is not 
the right way to go either. So there are two countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer marketing of drugs on television. It's us and New Zealand. So you can sit down and watch a baseball game with your nine-year-old today, and your nine-year-old will about learn about the joys of sexual enhancement. Uh, you will learn about how you can take attention deficit drugs to, get, to make you sharper in school or your work. And basically, what because the pharmaceutical industry is so powerful in the United States, they've been able to remove the doctor as the gatekeeper between your ailment and that pharmaceutical solution. Where it used to be, I've got this problem, my heart hurts, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, do this. Today, you go watch on TV and say, here's the solution to your hurt heart, hurt heart, and you go to the doctor and say, I want this drug. So it's really changed that. And I think going for a free-for-all it's not good. And also, I think I particularly came to this conclusion when I spent a year traveling with the Garmin Pro Cycling team. I don't think it's right to ask a talented 17, 18-year-old kid who discovers their passion for cycling or their immense talent in swimming to go to that next level that they have to start taking drugs to, to do it. Um, because, A, it's expensive. Uh, if they're doing it without a doctor's supervision, it's potentially quite dangerous. And, uh, yeah, I think those are the two big reasons. I just, morally, I think it's wrong to say you've got to take these drugs to do your, to your trade. But is there a solution? I don't think so. That's, I don't think sports will ever be pure. And it's particularly unique in the United States because while we celebrate performance-enhancing drugs and see the use of drugs by society at large as a human right, uh, something that... If, if a drug company is creating a drug to help you deal with the indignities of aging, uh, then as Americans, we feel like, yeah, we should be able to get that. We got the money. We got the power. Yeah, give me that. We say, Except for athletes. You guys know you got to stay in this little playpen of purity. So there's this fundamental contradiction in American society about how we treat drugs as a society at large and what we think athletes should do. Is there any country that's pure? Uh... Well, I think that France, when France passed that law in 1965, a French journalist wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, that uh, fear of the gendarme goes a long ways to, to clean up sport. And um, a number of cycling journalists have argued that the reason the French haven't won a Tour de France since, what, Laurent Fignon in, what was that, 85? 84? Yeah, since the 80s, a the French haven't won their own glorious sporting spectacle, and some argue that it's because the French were so serious about getting doping out of sport that, that their athletes were, were participating without dope. And really, I think that it's, it does take a government to effectively clean up a sport, because if you ask the IOC or, or the UCI, which is the International Cycling Union, which runs pro cycling to police themselves, there's an inherent conflict of interest. And we saw that throughout the Lance Armstrong years, Lance Armstrong years, because you know, he tested positive in 1999, his first Tour de France win, but that he was able to get a therapeutic use exemption and it happened other ways throughout his tenure, that he was, getting, he was doing drugs, the UCI knew it, but they protected him because he was doing great things for sport. Likewise, in the, in the United States, USA Cycling also knew Armstrong was doping. But they made the decision and saying, look, 
This guy is inspiring a lot of Americans to get on their bikes, get off the couch. And so we're going to deal with that because maybe the greater good is overlooking this long-standing cycling tradition. And if it's inspiring people to get a USCF license, start racing their bike, then that's probably a greater good. I'm curious about the sport of gymnastics. Um, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't often hear. Uh, in fact, I can't think of the last time I heard of someone who's been um, uh, um, accused of uh, doping who's a gymnast. But um, is it more prevalent than I'm aware of? You know, I'm not that familiar with doping in gymnastics. But what I do know is that East German uh, state program, sailors and female gymnasts were excluded from the mandatory requirement to take steroids. And I think their fear was that you know, Olga Corbett needs to be this big, and if they're giving her human, human growth hormone or steroids, they would become too big. In fact, you know, the East Germans, the, the orchestrators of that, they were Nazis. Um, and so in, in some evidence suggests they're actually giving women uh, medicines that would stunt their growth to keep them extra small. Okay, thank you. Please join me in thanking Mark Johnson. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.